Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Olympia Bobu for a conversation about the evolution of sculptures in ancient Greece. Dr. Bobu is Assistant Professor Aarhus University in Denmark. She's the author of numerous publications, including the book Children in the Hellenistic World, Statues and Representation, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she co-edited Hellenistic Sanctuaries Between Greece and Rome, which was also published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the call, Olympia. Uh, hi, it's really nice to see you or uh, talk to you. <laughs> It's nice to see you and talk to you as well. Uh, we can see each other, uh, but but uh, uh, as everyone knows, the audio will be the only thing that people can hear uh, in the yes. published piece. But it's great to see and uh, hear you, Olympia. Okay, so when we're talking ancient Greece, um, for the sake of this conversation, so we put some parameters around it, what, what period do we want to focus on? Uh, probably from around... 600 BC, so 7th century BC, all the way to uh, 31 BC, the, the Battle of Actium. 631. Yes, BC. I mean, okay. the Greek, ancient Greece goes a bit further, you know, in both directions. So from the 12th century BC and all the way to the 6th century AD. But when we think of Greek sculpture, this is the period we were thinking about. Usually. Yeah, sounds good. And what's um, what's significant as a marker about around the seventh century? What what changes about this area of study in the seventh century in Greece? Um, there are many things that change. Uh, we have political changes. We start seeing uh, the first city as um, which have seem to have more of an organization. This is the period when we start seeing philosophy. We start having the colonization. So the Greeks move away from the Greek peninsula all the way to Asia Minor, Egypt, all the way to, to France. So there's a period of great mobility and movement. And in art, this is the period when we start having large-scale um, statues, but also the first really big temple since uh, essentially the Minoan or Mycenaean period. Okay. And um, for the sake of um, creating some demarcation in, in the conversation, okay. are you fine if we focus more on the like what would be modern day Greece area yeah for the conversation absolutely. yeah okay um, we might need to talk a bit of you know a few other places please by all means yeah 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 if we want to bring in some other other stuff but just so we're sort of uh you know pegging it on a on a map okay um so before that period this conversation will be about um about this like this the seventh century and to the first century BCE, but but prior to that, just to create sufficient background for everyone listening, what would it, what would have sculptures in more of a summary way? What would sculptures have been, you know, before that period? Did sculptures exist? Was it a much more primitive, nascent form of of sculptures? Um, yeah, they do exist. Uh, we have um, literary references to woodcut statues. Uh, and these are the more um, ancient ones that then become the, you know, revered cult images, for example, the, that you have in Pausanias or the mentions of the Xoana. For example, you also have terracotta figurines. And perhaps one of the earliest sculptures is actually one of a centaur. So, you know, the half horse, half human hybrid. And that's mm -hmm. perhaps the first Greek 
statue or statuette because it's really small. It's in terracotta and it's also a mythological figure. So again, it has a lot of meaning for us. Okay. It's from the 920s. Interesting. Okay. The okay. What does terracotta mean? And where where was that? Uh, and we'll get we'll get back to the period we should be focused on. But you got me kind of you piqued my interest. Okay. So so what uh, what does terracotta mean? And wh- where was that uh, statue of the Minotaur found? So terracotta means baked clay in Italian, and it's a term we use for all the clay statuettes and figurines or reliefs that we have from um, the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So we use that term, and it's it's done basically from clay that is found in the natural soil. There's a process. You usually have to wash it and then remove all the impurities in order to have a good enough clay to make the statues. If you leave the impurities on, you can have good clay in order to make cooking pots, for example, but they're not going to be fine enough to create all the details or do the paintings and so on. And this, uh, this little statuette of the centaur was found in Lefkandi which is in Euboea. So mm-hmm. if you know Greece, it's a very big island right next to At- to Athens or Attica. Mm-hmm. So it's found in the center. And Lefkandi seems to have been one of the most important sites of uh, Euboea in the 9th century or 10th century. It has a, a very famous burial building, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is uh, very impressive. I can't remember how many meters long it is and has a burial with horses and there's a man and a woman with a lot of uh, jewelry and uh, even textile surviving and swords. Uh, it's a magnificent thing. And the, the terracotta figurine was found broken in two in one of the tombs around this burial building site. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's also quite significant because it's deliberately broken and it's placed in two different tombs. So we think there might have been some connection between the two people who were buried there and the figurine somehow connects them. We don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Wow. Um, I, I hosted a lovely uh, conversation with Dr. Hitchcock um, from the University of Melbourne. Uh, it actually published a few days ago. Um, and uh, that, that conversation is more about uh, Minoan, um, uh, Minoan uh, culture and a few other Greek islands, but modern day Crete. And so uh, if I recall correctly, uh, there was, uh, I forget what the, what the actual material was, but there was, uh, what was found was like uh, bulls, bulls heads in the Bron- Bronze Age. So what I presu- what I presumed when I asked the question was that you were going to uh, say that it was the uh, the Minotaur um, uh, sculpture was found more in the south near or in uh, modern day Crete, but this sounds actually north of even Athens, so it's up there, which is interesting. Uh, but we do find a lot of uh, early sculpture, um, not so much from the ninth century, for example, but before the six hundreds in uh, different parts of Greece, and we mostly find small bronzes. Uh, mm-hmm. So we find them in, sa- in sanctuaries. We don't have any of the statues that would have been worshipped, or at least we don't have anything that can be certainly as, uh, described as a cult statue. We have some ideas that some might have been cult statues, but you know, if you don't find it in situ with an inscription or you know, in the middle of a sanctuary, how can you prove it's a cult statue if you find it somewhere else in the middle of a field or taken mm-hmm. out of its context and then sold in a European collection in the 18th century? You, you can't prove it anymore. Okay. So 
for taxonomy purposes, um, so there's different terms that uh, are used in this kind of conversation. Uh, some of them are statues, sculpture, uh, effigy probably could be used. Can you take a moment and just uh, describe uh, some of the more popular terms, just so we're all on the same page in the conversation? Okay, so sculpture would be, I suppose, the more general, broader term that would cover all the different subgroups of sculpture. Then we have the statues, which mm -hmm. can be large scale or small scale, depending on how big they are. Uh, we usually use also the term life size. So if something is life size, that's obviously human figure, that's up to 180 meters. So if it's over 180, then it's over life size. And, and life-size statues are what we consider usually as large-scale ones. And then we have the figurines or statuettes or small-scale statues, which is everything that can be up to maybe half a meter. Okay, all right. And then we have reliefs, which are essentially plaques which have um, a decoration which has been carved on it. It can be in high relief. So, you know, if you have a very deep carving, and the figure really stands out from the relief, then that's a high relief. And then we have the low reliefs, which is more uh, flat in a way. And they can be either freestanding or they can be architectural. And freestanding means that it's something that's in the round, it can be set up in, indoors, outdoors, and architectural is anything that can be connected to a building. So do, so do the, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow along. So the, do the reliefs, um, do, are they designed to actually have more than the figure itself like a background as part of the material and or are they always part of another structure like a building uh we can have both okay i know it doesn't help but we do have so for example you can have uh, a temple and it might have a relief carved on let's say the roof the pediment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the upper part of the temple Mm -hmm. And there you can have human figures, you can have divine figures, you can have animals. Sometimes you can even have, uh, you know, attributes or objects that, that can be associated with whatever is happening on the pediment, on the action. Or you might have trees. Mm -hmm. Depends on what they're trying to figure, so, to represent. But then you might also have a freestanding relief, like a funerary stele that just stands on top of a grave and then it just marks the location of the grave with the depiction of the deceased. So in that case, Olympia, in the example of the, the funerary um, example, how, how would that be different from just calling it a statue? Or could you still just call that a statue as well? Uh, you can't. A statue is always a three-dimensional figure. Um, that it, it's like okay i'm just like right, yeah, example yeah, of a human figure yep yeah. because you can have statues yep. of horses or cows sure. there's a very famous cow statue in ancient greek uh, literature uh so it would be a human figure that would look like a human being from all sides a relief would only be a plaque with a depiction of a human on the front understood and the back yeah depending on how exactly this is placed might be somehow smooth so mm -hmm. usually if you're going to have it on top of the grave and it's going to be in the landscape, they do try to make it look a bit nicer from the back. But if it's not going to be visible because it might be incorporated on a bigger monument, which we do have in a later period, or it might be part of um, inside a, temp a sanctuary or something, then the back is usually carved a bit more roughly. Yep. 
Understood. Yeah. The, 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 the joy of um, speaking about uh, very visual topics on, in audio only. <laughs> no. But it's, it's good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but, it's enjoy- but it's interesting, right? Because uh, it, it forces us to use uh, language more in describing very visual uh, things. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. All right. So uh, 7th century, what are the kinds of sculptures that were found in that period? Can you speak more about uh, that? Uh, so in the 7th century, this is the period when we start having the big large-scale statues in marble first. Uh, bronze statues are going to come into layers slightly later. We still have uh, smaller statuettes in uh, bronze or ivory or other materials. But this is when you start seeing all these magnificent young men usually or young women which look like proper human beings. And that's pretty exciting because before they can be very schematic, they don't really follow uh, the proportions of the human body very well. But in this period, and probably because they have been to Egypt or the Near East and they see what people do there, they come back to Greece with all the know-how that they have accumulated, mostly in Egypt, and they start creating their own statues or reliefs based on that. So it's a pretty exciting period because suddenly you have objects that are you know, life-size, over life-size. The biggest one of them are about 10 meters tall and they're setting mm-hmm. them up in the sanctuary. So you go and you suddenly get impressed like you've never been impressed before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, have a massive human figure looking down at you. What was the reason, um, and I don't know if, if uh, uh, theorizing is needed for this uh, answer, but what was the reason for using more marble in the early part of the period versus bronze? Bronze would have existed by that point, right? Uh, bronze exists. What they don't really have at this point is the technology to make big bronze statues. Okay. So at this point, they can only create cast folk uh, bronzes. And so if you have to make a compact figurine out of bronze, you can't use too much and it's going to break if you try to make them all too big for it. So it's uh, slightly later. So after 600, that they actually realize that they can use the lost wax technique. So you have a core and then you have a mold and then you have wax mm. and then you seal it with clay and then you pour the, the, the bronze, liquid bronze into this, let's say mold, mm. essentially. The wax all gets lost because it melts down as you pour in the hot liquid a bronze on top, then it cools down. And then when you start removing all the clay from the side of the figure and outside the figure, you end up with either, um, depending on what you have, a small figurine that's hollow on the inside, or more importantly, parts per figure that can then be joined together. Mm-hmm. And then you can build a whole person like 180 meters tall out of bronze. Because now you can't, you don't have to use bronze for the whole figure just for the outer shell let's say interesting so they don't have the technology but they have a lot of marble and that's what they use and uh the marble okay so i'm gonna go the marble in a moment but the bronze yeah yeah some interesting yeah so the the bronze would the statues always have been created at the site itself or uh is there is there evidence that they were created elsewhere, um, possibly in parts, 
and then and then brought to uh, possibly in parts or in whole uh you can answer that however you feel necessary and then brought to the actual site where it's uh set up uh for bronze or marble Bron uh yeah let's start with oh yeah yeah i guess let's 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 go let's stick with the bronze i know bronze comes after um but let's stick with the bronze since i asked the question <laughs> Fine, I mean, it's also important. Uh, we don't know for a lot of cases. We do know specific areas in Greece where they specialize in, have, say, sculptural workshops mm -hmm. or sculptural production. So I think that probably they create the bronze statues in these locations and then they move them. Okay, okay. Um, and... Uh... And then let's let's go to let's go to marble. And I do want to speak about more what's being created, where where some of these um, sculptures are fine. And when I say what, like what's the meaning of them, right? I want definitely want to get into um, kind of the the ethos of, of some of these uh, sculptures. But when it comes to um, marble, when does that start to become? Um, well, that's at the start of the period. So can you describe the process then that they would have used to create the marble statues, in, including more about the actual material and tools that are thought to be used? Um, okay, so materials, said we have plenty of marble in Greece. And depending on which region you are, your marble can be fine grain, can be thicker grained. Uh, it can have different colors or it can be white of different translucence. So we have... I don't know exactly how many, I mean, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's definitely more than 20 types of marble that you can use. Of yep. course, the most okay. famous come from three or four quarries. So from Athens or from Paros, Naxos in the Cyclades, uh, the later Thassos up in the north. So these produce very nice white marble. And then you have areas like in Sparta, when you have a very nice green marble, which is in use uh, during the Roman period more. Mm -hmm. and also kind of very nice red and not so much for statues but more for bases so we have a lot of variety and what they do usually is they would try to carve as much of the figure as possible in the quarry mm. so you basically identify a block of marble that's good and then you start taking it out with pickaxes and then refining and refining it and then the very final process removing this essentially half-made figure which is can be even more than half made and then finally work the finer details in your workshop or the place where the object is going to be set up for example in the acropolis um mm -hmm. so you know the, a lot of the statues or the um, the architectural sculpture or the temple elements were created elsewhere and then they've been brought up to the hill to finalize the the figures Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. columns etc and as for the tools um, they're basically the same tools as people would be using in the middle ages or the renaissance period so there's no real difference in the technology of marble you of marble all the way from ancient greece to essentially the 19th 20th century when they start using electricity for the drills or mm. the way that you're carving and cutting the marble so you know you can have your uh, chisels of different things you can have picks you can have drills a bit later on especially in the roman period that's very popular what do we know about the people that mm -hmm. created these sculptures was it considered a profession did they consider themselves an artist is art uh, an artist mm -hmm. is there any 
uh, literature that lasted about these these people? Uh, we don't have any literature from the earlier periods, obviously, as we have uh, for mm -hmm. poetry and so on, but they do consider themselves professionals. Mm -hmm. And after a specific period, which is more or less um, from the fourth century onwards, some of them consider themselves artists and perhaps even earlier. Mm. Um, so if you are um, a sculptor who may, mostly works in bronze, because even though marble is something which is very abundant in Greece, actually bronze, the material that's considered the more noble in quotations, I don't really like this term, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but it's the one that's more desirable and the one that they use to, car to create the statues of athletes, like, you know, Olympia and the Olympic Games. So whoever won the Olympic Games gets the right to put up a statue right outside the temple of Zeus. So you have all these statues of all these victors go, going past for centuries, and most of them, if not all of them, were bronze. So that's a desirable material that you're going to be using, not so much the marble one. Do uh, after the archaic or saying so, you know, after the fifth century, it's bronze mainly. But for the artists, most of them are craftsmen. We mm -hmm. know how much they were being paid because we have records of uh, payments from um, sites like the Erechtheion and the Acropolis. We know something of the process of how they were being taught from later literature. Uh, so, for example, Lucian, before he became the writer, he was apprenticed to become a sculptor and he didn't like it. Mm. And then he went to his mom and says, they've been, they mistreated me, it's harsh. I really hate it. Can you tell your brother, you know, to let me go? <laughs> it was really sad. Mm. Um, and he could get away from it. Uh, we have Pliny, who's the, you know, the author of the natural history and writes mm -hmm. about an encyclopedia of the ancient world. He tells us about this artist, this craftsman who essentially become artists. And they can command high prices because they are working for kings like Lysippus. So he's working for Alexander the Great. So mm. everyone wants a work by Lysippus. And he, he can basically set his own prices for the works he, do, he does. Or Polycletus is working about a century earlier. So in the fifth century, who's the first one to theorize sculpture and say, these are the proportions of the human being. And this is how a human figure should be cre created. And he's considered to be um, the sculptor more associated with uh, athletic figures, which are super important throughout the, the Greek world. So there is a variety. So you might have this megastars, let's say, but then you have this poor craftsman. And again, we have a letter from one of them who get apprenticed to work in the workshop and they are being beaten in order to learn the trade and they do not enjoy it. And they probably never become as important as Lysippus or Praxiteles later. So... Mm -hmm. I suppose it's a bit like every profession. You have mm. people who are really good at it and become famous, and then you have everyone else. Yep, understood. Uh, what kind of sculptures are most prevalent in the early period in terms of the, the types um, from a meaning perspective? Were they funerary uh, types? Were they mythological? Were they so something else? What's most prevalent in that early period? Um, a bit of everything, I would say. Okay, first of all, as I said, we don't really know much about the cult statues. We know they're there, but we can't always trace them because of the way sites have been excavated. 
what we end up having a lot of the time is the votives. So mm -hmm. statues that have been dedicated to a god, either because you're fulfilling a vow or because you want the god to do something for you. Or we have a lot of funerary objects. So stele first, and then also uh, statues of mostly youths. Uh, so these are the earlier ones. Uh, then in the classic, we might have mythological figures, but they're not so popular in the earlier period. Once we start moving into the classical period, we start having a lot more athletes. And these can be grouped under dedication because usually you would put up a statue of an athlete who's won at some games and the games are all associated with a deity. Mm -hmm. So again, votives, uh, you can have uh, votive statues of women. They start fairly early on. Uh, mythological heroes, cows, the, seriously, the cow of Myra is, of Myra is very famous because it was so lifelike and that's classical piece. So what's the cow? Can you, and, can you take, can you take a moment Olympia well, and describe that? Well, the cow is something we don't really have. I mean, because a lot of these mm -hmm. statues that were cast in bronze, so we don't have them. What we have is Roman copies of them. And some of them are also very, so some we have through the copies and we study them through what the Romans, how the Romans perceived them and copied them. And some we have, or we know about from literature, either because of Pliny or because like this very famous cow, it is so lifelike that poets then compete among each other. Who's gonna write the best poem about this very famous cow that we don't really know what it looked like. So it's, it's just fascinating to think about something that doesn't exist and just lights up the imagination of poets for centuries and we are left with trying to imagine what it might have looked like you know is it believed that the cows link to any uh mythology as in a votive type we don't know it is a votive it is a votive but we don't really know if it was supposed to be because we know for example that Hera, i think or different deities do transform into cows or bulls so maybe it was something like that okay kind of idiosyncratic okay and why were youths you mentioned youths why were they being sculpted uh, most of them are being sculpted because they're victorious athletes and also there is this whole i suppose it's a very ancient greek thing there's a cult of beauty so the youthful male body is considered the ideal male body and it's also the youthful male body of a free person. And that's important because that's supposed to be a controlled body and ideal means uh, not just perfect, but also showing restraint and decorum and propriety and being pious and has all these virtues wrapped into it. So it's becoming emblematic of essentially the people who can afford to have statues made because even if a statue is made by a craftsman, it still costs a lot. In yeah. in those cases, and we can include, you mentioned uh, women as well. In, in yeah. those cases, if it's not clearly votive, mm -hmm. is it believed that these were actual family members that were being sculpted? Uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. So in, you can have it in votives, but you can have it in funerary monuments as well so you mm -hmm. do have mm -hmm. i think but we don't know as far as i can think of all the literature we don't know if a sculptor sculpting his mother 
But what mm-hmm. will happen is, if you have a lot of money and you want to honor your mother, you would set up a statue of your mother in a sanctuary. So that's partly dedication, partly showing off, partly displaying your piety and your wealth. It's a combination of things. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is really elite work, these big, large-scale statues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good answer. I think it, it answers the, the question. I was I, Where I was going with it was wondering if it was yeah. a tribute, like a tribute towards a family member. And I could see that that would be common in uh, a funerary type setting. Or a votive. Um, I mean, that's the whole thing. You find all these objects basically everywhere. So you would find them in the sanctuaries. You would mm. find them in, um, in the funerary sphere. You would even find them in houses. You find them in public spaces. And the more time passes, in the beginning, you might have them just in the sanctuaries and it's just devoted. But at the same time, when you're rich enough to afford something like that, and then you say, oh, I, Nicandra, for example, it's a very early statue, dedicate this to, um, to Artemis. Isn't this also a boast that you are Nicandra of the family of so-and-so, he's very rich, obviously, and you're also very rich, and you're setting this up in the sanctuary as a dedication? And that just continues. So yesterday I was walking my dog. So I live in Toronto. I'm in Toronto, Canada right now. And I live a couple blocks from... uh, Ontario's legislature. So the in uh, a, a park is um, adjoined to that. It's called Queens Park, and in in Queens Park, there's statues, um, and uh, and they're very large statues, um, m- much larger. So I'm thinking of one. I I, I uh, forget the um, historical figure's uh, name. Um, but it's not life size. He, he's on a horse. The horse is bigger than a horse would be in real life, right? He's much bigger than he, he probably was in real life. Um, wh- why, why does that occur? And did that occur uh, creating more than life size um, effigies? Did that occur in this period as well? Or when a craftsman or an artist was sculpting, did they try to properly represent the size of their figure? Um, it really depends on, again, who, what the patron wants. So you could have that, uh, which could be more or less life-size, but you could have even bigger statues, especially if you're making a statue of a king or you're the, the person paying for the statue is a king. So he's very happy to be portrayed as a two meter something tall person on a pedestal. And he's really looking down on you because the pedestal is another meter tall structure, you know? Uh, so they do have them. And what I think is quite interesting is that they, even when they set them up in sanctuaries, because they do set them up in public spaces and you have different donors and so on, and they do pretend that these are dedications to the God. At the same time, they're not just about a dedication. It's really about how they perceive themselves, how they want to be seen. Uh, for example, they do try to make them lifelike and realistic, but in reality, they could really be very well trying to make people look better than they were or nicer than they were. For example, Alexander the Great. 
so who the one with Lysippus as a sculptor, he prefers Lysippus because he says Lysippus is the one that shows how majestic I am, basically. He doesn't say it in these words, but he says he's the one who basically captures me better than anyone. And what Lysippus mm -hmm. does is he creates this very dynamic, youthful ruler type, essentially. So, you know, striding forward, looking ahead, um, hair that looks a bit like a lion's mane, uh, kind of um, squarish, a bit masculine face, because Alexander, according to the sources, is very pretty looking. So he didn't like when people called him pretty because he's like, I'm a general, I'm a king, I can't be pretty, I'm a man, <laughs> you know? So Lysippus is bringing out this manliness in Alexander through all this, you know, the nudity, the striding forward, the tilt of the head, uh, the, the hair, which is really like, really, it's really like a lion's mane, you know, kind of wild and framing the face. So was it really Alexander or? Yeah, understood, <laughs> uh, understood. Yeah. Uh, when you think back in all the work that you've done on this topic, uh, which, what, what's, what sculpture stands out for you and that would be pegged to this period that's votive in nature? What stands out for you that, that's most visceral? It's very difficult because there's so many of them that are just so, uh... Most of visceral, uh, or something that pops in your mind that's no noteworthy that well, you want to like share. It's more like it's a lot of things, because you know, for example, uh, we have the Aphrodite of uh, Praxiteles, and she's the first woman that has been depicted naked, and it's a divine figure, and that's a complete shock to everyone, especially in a society where women are supposed to be fully veiled when they go out, and maybe you can, you know, you can see their eyes. If they're good, respectable women, you're not really supposed to see more than that, or maybe just their faces. Uh, they go out escorted by servants. They're not supposed to be talked about. They're not supposed to be named outside the houses. And suddenly you have this naked female statue. So that's pretty shocking. And then a bit later, so maybe 200 or so, you start having old men and women being portrayed. And that's, again, quite exciting and strange and you know, provoking a visceral reaction because everything else in the sanctuary or the public space where you might be is all about youthful men or women who are quite covered up, all dressed up in nice clothes from head to toe or, you know, in the case of men, completely naked, but they're all youthful males. So, you know, they look amazing uh, and they're all very properly behaving and they don't make any gestures which are exaggerated. And suddenly you have all the people being portrayed. Mm. You have a drunken old woman who's basically sitting down and she's holding the, a jug of wine in her hands. Or you might have um, orator Demosthenes who basically ended up in Athenian politics and you know, and against Macedon and, you know, he's a very famous figure who ends up quite tragically and he's been shown as a guy who's been wise and with you know, sloping shoulders, kind of, to me it looks a bit like a defeated posture. Maybe other people see it differently, but it is a bit of a shock because he's uh, shown as kind of old and wise and trying really hard to, you know, tell the Athenians what you're doing is wrong. and. They don't listen. Uh, so I think that's also pretty shocking. And it's very difficult to just choose one 
Sorry. No, no, no. I, no, this is great. Yeah, no, my sometimes I do a, a sigh. It's not. It's not you. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm thinking okay. of. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm percolating. I'm. This is good. Um. So, I want to. Okay. So the scene. The seniors start to be depicted more and and more um, detailed body types and postures and expressions and stuff. Do you think that was because the uh, sculptures were more prevalent over time? So there's more of them. So, so mathematically, there was a higher chance that you would have uh, more different types. Do you think it was more attitudinal? So the attitudes were evolving or changing over time in this area? Or do you think, and all these can be linked as and or, but I'm curious what how, how you respond. And or do you think the actual skills by the artists increased? Um, I think that you, you definitely have a skill uh, increase in the artists from the classical period onwards. And you also have from, let's say, the 400s, a more emphasis on naturalism. They do care to show people as they were, or at least you know, to have types of people as they see them around them. Uh, it might be also that there are a lot more sculptures in a later period rather than because you have than earlier because you do have a lot more money flowing in the Greek world. Mm-hmm. Um, after Alexander the Great and the unification of Greece, Asia Minor, Egypt and so on to a massive empire, you actually have a lot more money flowing because you now have basically you know, four or five big kingdoms, which are a lot easier to transport goods. And, you know, you don't have to go through 10 different city states, you know, to send, have something sent in. So opportunities for trade and movement population is a lot easier. Everyone speaks Greek by this time. So again, the mm-hmm. economy is booming. So you have that. Uh, attitudes are changing as well. Mm. I mean, we definitely see that with women. You have a lot more women from the later classical and the Hellenistic period than you have before. And people th- think that maybe it's because you now have queens in all these different kingdoms. And suddenly you have a woman who's been very visible and doing things out in public, whereas before you wouldn't have that. So now other women see that and think, well, if she can do it, then I can spend my money and putting up a statue for myself. And sons probably also think, okay, now I can also, you know, venerate and show my respect to my mother the way that they do in the royal families, like in Macedonia or Egypt. So um, there's no easy answer. I think it's a you know combination of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could very well be that also they are more interested in all these different types, because we also see that in literature, they definitely go away from you know, talking about battles. I mean, love is obvious. I think that people talk about all the time, but they move away from all the heroic subjects to the more intimate subjects, like discussions between people in their living rooms, quotations, or their bedrooms, or they meet up in the street. And so it could be a more general attitude. So one of the things we wanted to cover in this chat was the evolution in this period. It sounds like naturally in some of your answers, you're speaking about the evolution. Is there anything else that you think's noteworthy to add on, on how uh, the creation of sculptures evolved in the ancient period in Greece? 
uh, including it included in this question is materials. We talked about marble, uh, then bronze uh, starts to exist as a as a material to create um, sculptures. Is there any other materials that come about that become uh, prevalent in this period? Well, I wouldn't say exactly prevalent, but it's definitely becoming really important to have massive, big cult statues made sometimes of mixed media. So if you think of Phidias and the two most famous statues that he creates in among the ancient world are the Athena Parthenos and then Zeus at Olympia, they are both, um, you know, gold and ivory. So materials that are very, very precious. And they're used in a scale which, you know, couldn't have been done earlier. And for example, in Olympia, he has to basically recreate the temple of Zeus, like the, the, the um, inner court uh, in a room where the statue is going to be built in a different location very close to the temple and that's his workshop because he needs to have the exact dimensions of the building in order to create the statue of Zeus and see how tall he's going to be and he's actually creating everything all the little details made of glass or uh, you know ivory and so on in that space and that's also something that's quite fascinating that from the classical period especially onwards although gold and ivory are materials that are being used already from the seventh century or even before that uh, you start having these statues which are now completely massive and they're very famous they attract people um, i said there's also the trend towards naturalism which starts already from the archaic and slowly moves in um, until the Hellenistic period. So they become as lifelike as they can be. When we think you start having a lot more types, so we talked about old men and women, we also have children. You don't have children in the archaic period, except maybe sometimes in very tiny figurines, which are crappy. Mm. Sometimes they're not that great. Mm. But you start having children being depicted in their own right. And not just as uh, parts of funerary monuments, because, for example, the mother with a child is a very common type. You might have it, but then suddenly you might have a child on their own. You also have personifications, which is, again, a very new thing from the fourth century. So you might have a personification of fortune or good luck or peace. And that's another thing that you would never imagine finding a sanctuary in the sixth century. But now it becomes really important to people to be able to visualize all these abstract um, entities. How do you call? You know? Sorry, what is a personification? More for my knowledge. Uh, a, person, a personification is mm -hmm. um, a depiction in the human form of an abstract idea. Mm -hmm. So, for example, fortune or luck is something that you can't you, you talk about, but how do you visualize it? Understood. And it could be a sculpture, and it could be that um, idea or thought could be in a sculpture as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's quite new in the fourth century, especially. It starts. Like, so as, a example, as, like as a relief, as a relief or, or a certain type. Uh, both as a relief or a statue. For example, peace, the personification of peace is a massive statue that is very famous in Athens. And that's a full scale. It's a it's an over life size statue of a woman who is very solid when you look at her, and to me again looks very matronly. So she's um, a very steady figure on her feet, and she's holding a child in her arm because peace brings wealth. So that's the personification of 
little wealth with her. Um, and then you have a personification of opportunity. And opportunity is depicted as a young man who's running. So you need to catch him. And how do you catch a running man in a relief? He has, has a single lock of hair on the front of the forehead. So the idea is you have to catch opportunity as it passes by you, then it's gone. Hmm. It's a charm and a relief. So you grew up in Greece, and we chatted about this briefly prior to the uh, prior to starting. Um, can you can you share where you grew up and uh, anything around that that's relevant? You think to this conversation, and how did how did growing up in Greece in, inform your work in your career? Um, well, I grew up in Thessaloniki, which is a beautiful city, I'd say, and it has a lot of Roman, Greek Roman art, rather than classical Greek art as Athens. Mm. Uh, so, already by growing up there and traveling around Greece, you know, one gets exposed to all this ancient stuff, mm -hmm. I'd say, because you go to the sanctuaries, you go to the cemeteries, uh, you go to the museums, and you see everything in front of you. And of course, that's um, that's influencing your work because you, you get to be curious about where did they put them up and who made them and who were these people. And then you probably think, where are the poor people? You know, because that's the next question, where are they, what are they doing? And then you realize, oh yeah, you have the big marble and bronzes, but you also have small terracottas that people can give and dedicate. So, you know, if you don't have enough money to dedicate a big sculpture of marble, you could actually dedicate a little small clay figurine. So you could still, you know, do something that shows you're pious and devoted and religious, or you can put that in your tomb, inside, though, not outside. So you get curious about these things, and then you realize there are even more things that you don't know as you go to the museums. Like, it's always very shocking when people think about painted colors on statues, especially, you know, because now they're all white in the museums and they look really nice, or yeah. white like that, but they're not. And the thing I love about Greek sculpture is it's really gaudy. It's almost kitsch. I mean, they love bright colors, mm -hmm. which makes complete sense because, you know, you have a lot of sunlight. Uh, these things are very often placed, especially on buildings, quite high up. So, you know, you can't paint them in pastels and pinks and blues, like light blue. You need to have like vivid red and vivid green and vivid blue and or black. You know, you have to catch the eye as you walk down and you're basically, you know, eight meters below them. And I think that was really exciting mm. to find out about more about polycropy, you know. When you were a youth looking up at these sculptures did you know at that point in time you were gonna sign up for a lifetime of work studying this topic <laughs> no i did not sometimes i'm thinking no uh, but no but i have to say some of them are just so moving like one of the things i really like is more is the funerary objects because there's something so touching because you know this was made to commemorate someone's life and it can be a life that was but, you know, they live to their full potential, but it could be a life that was cut short. So then, you know, these mothers with their children, they probably both died at childbirth. And when you think about that, it's not just art. It becomes something very personal. And that I find uh, that makes it worth, you know, studying them and spending a lot of hours and looking at them and thinking about how they were set up and how much would they cost and, you know, the not so emotional things in a way. Hmm. 
But it's interesting trying to think about the people who set them up and why did they do these things? I mean, the society obviously has set of rules and they are trying to comply, but they're also trying to show their individuality. And they show it by choosing maybe different types of garments or uh, jewelry or maybe something in the inscription that really speaks about who they were as people. And I think that's really fascinating. It has been lovely and enjoyable speaking with you today, Olympia. Thanks for coming on the call. Nice. Thank you for this. It was fun. Bye. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Bobu has written, she authored Children in the Hellenistic World, and she co-edited Hellenistic Sanctuaries between Greece and Rome. She also told me that she'll provide some additional book recommendations for anybody that's interested in this topic and would like to read up more. I'll drop links to all these books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Olympia and everybody listening, as always, Wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.